Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, that is our prayer, that you would be glorified in us today, in our lives, in our homes, in our church, and beyond. Use us for your glory, we pray. And Lord, as we come to your word now, would you speak to us by the power of your spirit? Would you uh, go into each of our hearts and do business there? We know that we need you right now. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Ready for the sex talk today? <laughs> no, not that sex talk. Perhaps surprisingly, the Bible actually has a lot to say about sex. And we're going to talk about what it says today. And then ask ourselves, hopefully, are there ways that my own views and my own lifestyle may need to change if I were to live out and honor God's design and desires for my sex life. And this is where all the parents here go, thank God for Sunday school. <laughs> but I believe that we tend towards five incorrect or at least incomplete views of sex today. First, we think that sex is bad or dirty, especially if we grew up in a traditional religious home. We have tended to be so opposed to sexual sin that all sex gets clouded by a stigma. Sex has, at times, basically been treated like a necessary evil. At least, and at the least, this can lead to discomfort with sex or confusion about it. Maybe you've heard stories of, of honeymoons where someone's trying to flick the switch between bad and good and, and they can't do it. Even in, in healthy contexts, we can suppress our sex drives or be weighed down by guilt or shame. Most people today think that Christians, that we have this repressive view of sex, that sex is dirty. But I believe that you'll see today that that is decidedly not true, according to God's word. A second common view of sex we have, though, is that sex is purely natural. It's an appetite or drive, a biological or chemical impulse. And there is some truth to this, but it's very incomplete. And when we view sex as only a natural appetite, it easily leads to dissatisfaction, always needing more, or a loss of self-control, or even addiction. It also becomes very difficult to set any consistent moral boundaries on sex, even to the extremes, such as sexual abuse, or assault, or adultery. If it's all natural, what's the problem with that? Third, the mantra of today is to say that sex is you. It's your identity. Defines you. So living out your sexuality is how to best be yourself or find yourself or express yourself. But while sex plays a part in who we are, 
it's in truth a very small part of who we are. Sex is, is too fleeting and too flimsy to carry the weight of your whole identity. And it would mean that whenever you are not getting sex to your liking, that you are failing to be you, which is not true. This is an imbalanced or underdeveloped identity. Sex as identity then tends to lead to an unhealthy fixation or a preoccupation with sex and ultimately frustration when it doesn't fulfill us or satisfy us. A fourth view today is that sex is private. It's personal. Frankly, it's none of your business. Get your own room. What I do in mine shouldn't matter to you. However, despite its privacy, sex is inherently communal and community building. Sexual relationships always affect others. And sex effects on society are never private. Beyond that, Christians believe that we're never alone, even in private. That God is there, and he cares. This view, though, tends to lead to over-individualization. It treats us as wholly autonomous beings, not as people who are accountable to anyone outside ourselves. Frankly, it's also selfish. It's a small step from some of these views to the fifth one, and that is that sex is God, or everything to us. If through sex, we seek to achieve self-fulfillment, satisfaction, or true humanness, then we are placing God-sized and God-shaped expectations on sex. And this is nothing new. Most civilizations have had gods or goddesses of sex or fertility over the years. And while we may not have given ours a personal name, our culture totally worships sex. And this leads to obsession, and when our gods inevitably disappoint us, disillusionment. Spiritually speaking, this is defined as idolatry, and it leads to judgment. So, what is your view of sex? Have you bought into some of those lies or partial truths at times? If sex is not inherently bad, not purely natural, not your identity, not totally private, and not God, then what is it? What does God, the designer and giver of sex, say it is and what it's for? This fall, we've been seeing how our life in Christ affects our lives and relationships in our homes. And we've begun with seven weeks on marriage, and today we'll see how sex relates to marriage. I've said from the start that I think married and unmarried Christians need a robust understanding of marriage, both for your benefit and for the benefit of those around you. But this one topic may be more applicable to single people than some of the others. 
because our world and our culture has divorced sex from marriage altogether. And so this is something that you have to wrestle with long before marriage or after marriage. How will you live out your sexuality and will it align with God's will? That's really the question. We'll be flipping all over the Bible today, but let's start again in Genesis 1. So go ahead and write to the beginning of your Bible, Genesis 1. And as we go through, I'm hoping to give you a biblical overview of the sanctity of sexual intimacy today. Uh, of the sanctity of sexual intimacy. And the first point I think we need to see from God's Word is that sexual intimacy is a holy gift from a holy God for marriages to delight in. That sexual intimacy is to be holy is why I use the word sanctity in the title. It's set apart for special use. Sexual intimacy is a holy gift from a holy God for marriages really to, to shamelessly delight in. And this truth flies in the face of the idea that sex is dirty bad or sinful. It's not. For one, look, it was given to us by God pre-fall into sin. In Genesis 1 verse 28, it says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Like notice that very first command ever given by God to mankind requires sex. Can't do it without it. Sex is designed as a way for us to multiply God's image bearers on earth and to exercise our God-given dominion. I think there are at least three things that married couples are meant to delight in through sex. And one of them is actually childbearing. We're to delight in multiplication, you could say. You see that here in Genesis 1.28. Like, do not by the really satanic lie that children are a negative outcome of sex. They're not. Like, sure, it can feel challenging, frustrating, or even scary at times. But God clearly sees procreation as a very good thing and a positive outcome. Consider... God could have made the process of multiplication pleasureless or unpleasant even. But that he made this command so delightful for people to obey? Praise the Lord. There is delight in the action of sex and there should be delight in the result of sex. Like any parent that has held a newborn baby has experienced that joyous delight. And many can also attest to the agonizing pain of childlessness. It's painful and it shows that things are not how they are meant to be. 
I believe that those who treat childbearing like a curse to avoid mock the pain of infertility. It's not a curse to avoid. It's a blessing to pursue. But my point is here is just that sex is designed as a gift from God for us to find delight in this, in multiplication. But this truth also points to delight beyond multiplication. One commentator actually defines the point of marriage as sex in the service of God. Sex in the service of God. It's the whole purpose of marriage. But if sex only serves God when it leads to pregnancy, then most sex wouldn't serve God. Believe it or not, I have not only made love to my wife six times in our whole marriage. But we have not been given this massive capacity for pleasure only for procreation. We see this in many places in Scripture, that we're to delight also in oneness or in our union that God has brought together. Even in the very next chapter, like look down, scan your eyes over verses 18 or 19 down to 25 in chapter 2. Okay, we've read this a lot lately, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, just skim over it. But as we've seen, God is the one who brought the woman in all her glory to man. And God joined them together in a one flesh union, which sex seals and symbolizes. And God commanded them then to hold fast to one another in permanence and passion. And notice, you read through this, there's not a whiff of children or childbearing anywhere in this chapter. Which tells me that the delight in a couple's union is a good thing in and of itself. Sexual intimacy itself can serve the Lord as we serve each other. And then you come to verse 25 at the end, and it says, And man, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Completely naked, without an ounce of shame. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize there are sexual illusions there. That's, this is a, a face-to-face relationship of complete belonging and total vulnerability. And even now, after the fall, marriages that, that let us be intimately known and embraced without any ridicule or embarrassment experience an aftertaste of Eden. If you're married, you should never feel shame for your married lovemaking. It's a good gift from God. And you should be delighting in your covenantal one flesh union under God. He's brought you together. Moving on from Genesis, though, this is all over the Bible. In Deuteronomy 24.5, newlyweds were basically mandated a year-long honeymoon. Young husbands or grooms weren't to go to war or to be summoned to public duty, but instead it says, he shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Or a more literal translation says, he shall give 
happiness to his wife. In Ecclesiastes 9.9, it tells men, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun. Here's a, a new life verse for you husbands. In Isaiah 62.5, God himself is described like a husband delighting in intimacy with his wife. It says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Like, think about it. That's how good and holy sexual delight can be if God uses it to liken it to his own passionate love for his people. Or, turn over with me to the most obvious example of all, the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, page number is up there on the screen for you to help you find it. The Song of Solomon is an entire book of poetry that celebrates marital passion and romance. It describes pure, gentle, playful, erotic love between a young bride and groom. And yet it's poetically discreet at the same time. I remember reading it as a kid and just not getting it at all. It went right over my head. Like, why was this rated R in Israel? Like, that's what it was. You weren't allowed to read it until you were over a certain age. But then when I was older, I was like, oh, wow. That's in the Bible. <laughs> like, let's just, like, God's word is not embarrassed by sex because it's a holy gift from God. Okay, we're just going to skim through some of this. In verse uh, 2 of chapter 1, it says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. In verse 4, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. In chapter 2, verse 6, it says, His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. In chapter 4, 11, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Verse 16, awake, O north wind. O come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. That's not talking about a real garden. Chapter 5, verse 1, where others speak of it, says, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Chapter 5, 16, His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Jump down two verses. Chapter, uh, verse 2 of chapter 6, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Chapter 7, verse 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best 
wine. You get the picture? Now, some of the poetry doesn't totally translate to the modern world very well. For example, in chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. I don't suggest, guys, that you say your wife's head and face are covered in goats and sheep. (laughs) She won't get the romance in that. (laughs) But as you read through this, there are whole chapters where the man and his wife marvel over each other's bodies. There's intimacy, there's foreplay, there's arousal, there's climax, and it's all holy. It's in God's word. And then we come towards the end of the book, And we get the only mention of the Lord in it. In chapter 8, verse 6, we read this a few weeks ago, where where the woman says, Set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. So, the flashes of passion in marriage come from where? From the Lord. Like, married love burns intensely, and God made it that way. It came down from above, he says. So then, this all leads to an obvious question. If sex is such a good thing, why confine it to marriage? Really, why? After all, we see that in the Bible, that it's the consistent teaching of God's word that sexual intimacy is good in marriage, and in all other contexts, it's wrong, harmful, and even destructive. Why? Well, out of several reasons, the main one is because sex is such a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. It's it's much more than just physical urges. It's deeply emotional and even spiritual. See, sex was designed from the beginning to signify, to cement, and to strengthen a one-flesh marriage union. It's a a beautiful, powerful tool to use for that purpose. To signify, cement, and strengthen your union. And it's safe to use within the context of, of covenantal, faithful love. But to use a tool outside what it was intended for can be quite dangerous. Just think in... In our world, like bleach can clean or it can poison. Dynamite can dig a tunnel or blow up a building. A river within its banks 
is life-giving. But a river in flood decimates and destroys. Or maybe the best picture, I think, is fire. Sex is described as like fires of passion anyway. But fire within a fireplace keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace burns the house down. Sex is like that. And marriage is like the fireplace. Sex used outside a marriage covenant forms emotional, physical, and spiritual bonds with people who are not fully committed to your own good. You might think, but Pastor Matt, come on, we love each other. Like, don't worry. It's okay. I'd ask, how much do you love each other? Really? How much do you love each other? Do you love each other enough to commit to it for life? If not, you don't love each other enough for sex. You probably love yourself. If you really love the other person and want the absolute best for them, then you will show your love by first covenanting and only then sealing it with sex. Safe sex doesn't involve a condom. It involves a covenant. It's the only safe place for sex. And that's not even getting into the point that God created the world with moral order. Like we're not trying to impose our morality on people who then just resent the intrusion. We're trying to show that, that God has created us and the world in a certain way, and we ignore that to our peril, both individually and culturally. God has created sex to be safe and fruitful in marriage, and his boundaries are for our good. And you are welcome to ignore this, but it will prove harmful to yourself and others. Flip back a handful of pages from Song of Solomon to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5. This is a chapter that urgently warns young men, especially away from the dangers of sexual sin. Got like 14 straight verses of just how destructive adultery can be, going after anyone outside of marriage. At the same time, it strongly urges married couples toward sexual joy and pleasure and passion. Look at verse 15. This is the man writing Proverbs, writing to his son. It says, drink water from your own cistern, Flowing water from your own well. Again, guys, don't go calling your wife a cistern or a well. But the imagery makes a powerful point. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her 
love. How's that for biblical marriage advice? Be intoxicated with your spouse. Drink deeply from there so you're less tempted to draw from elsewhere. And then comes another warning. Verse 20, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Disregarding God's ways is deadly folly. And like if, if for no other reason, for no other reason, we should keep sex and marriage because we fear God. Did you see that? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. But this passage is essentially saying, keep your fire in the fireplace of marriage, and then stoke that fire as hot as you can. As Ray Ortland says, God gave us our sexuality both to focus our romantic joy and to unleash our romantic joy. Wisdom believes that God's remedy for a man's thirst for sex is sex, overflowing sexual joy with his wife. And drink from your own sister in her will. Marriage is God's divinely approved wellspring for sexual delight. Like let your fountain be blessed is not confining. This is a freeing benediction. Like go for it. Tim and Kathy Keller wisely add that sex is for whole life self-giving. Whole life self-giving. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. And that gets at one more thing that marriages are meant to delight in through sex. That's to delight in giving. Giving. I'll show you this from 1 Corinthians 7. So you can turn over there now into the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7. The context here is that some Christians in the early church were suggesting that it was noble to abstain from sex, period. That, that sex is dirty or a necessary evil idea again. But Paul was like, uh, no. <laughs> Look in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so this is them talking, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Like sex in marriage is good and helpful for godliness, he says. By the way, this is not looking down on singles. In this very chapter, Paul lifts up singleness as a very noble calling in life. We're going to see this later this fall. 
But here, Paul also lifts up the, the sanctity and the generosity of sex within marriage. He goes on to say, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, so there's a lot to, to get to here. But when you get married, you surrender independent control or autonomy over your own body. You become one flesh after all. It's almost one person. It's like we willingly give our body to our spouses. Which means, today, if you are not yet married, but you are considering getting married, you had better make sure you trust the other person completely. Paul says that the spouses actually have some mutual authority over each other's bodies. Now this was revolutionary in the ancient world where wives were treated like property. He's saying that a wife has just as much claim and just as much authority over her husband's body as he has over hers. Now, these verses can be and have been badly abused. So I want you to read carefully. Look at it. Does this say um, a husband or wife should take his or her conjugal rights? No. Right? Does this say your spouse's body is yours to do with whatever you please? No. Does this say, whenever you're sexually excited or aroused, to insist on sex? No. No, these instructions here are for both spouses to offer or give themselves to the other. This is not talking to the receiving party at all, but to the giving party. You see that? Like intimacy should never be coerced or seized, but instead freely given. Now, obviously, sex should be mutual. You should both be finding delight in it, both giving and both receiving. And this is not saying that you can never initiate sex when you feel like it. This is saying that our primary motive in sex should be to offer and to give, and to bless, not to take. Your primary joy should be to seek their joy and pleasure, never to seek only your own. And there's actually plenty of delight in that. It's more blessed to give than to receive, even in sex. If you're married and you have a frustrating sex life, perhaps you're aiming at the wrong thing. 
is sex is not designed to satiate and gratify you, but for you to serve and be generous. It's a total mindset shift here. A clear implication of all these passages, I think, is that, is that sex and marriage, like, according to God, should be frequent and free and fun. But this doesn't just happen like it absurdly appears to happen in movies and shows. A great sex life is lovingly nurtured in safety. It's cultivated over time. The word for devote in devote yourselves to prayer in verse 5 means to give time and energy and attention to something. But what does that imply? Like if that's the exception, then the norm, like normally, sex should have time, energy, and attention devoted to it. And if, there, if you're married and there are any lifestyle choices that are killing your intimacy, then you need to make changes in order to stoke the fires again. Of course, there are seasons that require more understanding and patience and gentleness and your self-control such as illnesses or injuries, pregnancies, postpartum recoveries, menopause, name a few. But if our primary aim is to please our spouse, then we will all sacrifice our own desires to love them well. And one more thing, don't be super discouraged if you have sexual issues in your marriage. Almost all couples will encounter challenges at times. Let me encourage you. Take those cares, take those concerns to the Lord in prayer. Don't be ashamed to ask someone mature and discreet for help. See a doctor if you need to. But my point is just don't let the issues fester. Devote yourself to developing a a God-honoring, healthy sexual relationship with your spouse. After all, sexual intimacy is a holy gift from our holy God for marriages to delight in. If you're married, don't neglect the gift or misuse the gift or try to return the gift. Enjoy it. Oh, and one other thing for everyone here. Protect it. Protect it. I think the Bible is clear on this as well. That holy sexual intimacy must be protected inside and outside marriage. Holy sexual intimacy must be vigilantly, vigorously protected inside and outside marriage. This is why Proverbs 5, what we read, soberly warns against the perils of adultery and sexual sin. It can seem very attractive, and it can prove exceptionally disastrous. And this is why, in 1 Corinthians, the passage right before 1 Corinthians 7 in chapter 6 talks about honoring and glorifying God with our bodies and with our sexuality. Like, how do we do that? By fleeing sexual immorality. In other words, sex as it's not meant to be. 
Look with me in chapter 6, verse 13, where it says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Paul goes on to say that when we're sexually immoral, that mimics the one flesh relationship. It's not the one flesh relationship, but it it mimics that. It looks like that. In verse 16, it says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But then don't miss the point. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You get the contrast there? Joined physically in one body, and joined to the Lord in one spirit. In other words, we are joined as one spirit, or you could say spiritually married to Christ. United to him. All believers are part of this ultimate union. Therefore, sexual sin doesn't just complicate human marriages. It violates the divine marriage. And so, verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Whatever you need to do to flee sexual sin today, do it. After all, it says you've been graced by God, you've been filled with the Spirit, and you've been bought by the blood of Christ. You no longer belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. Your body is his body. Now just think about that. And let's be awestruck by the dignity that that bestows on us. That Christ would unite himself to us. And then let's live worthy of his gospel. Tim Challies puts it well. says, God the Father owns your body as your maker. God the Son owns it as your redeemer. And God the Holy Spirit owns it as the one who resides within it. In sin, you essentially usurped God's right of ownership. But Christ's work on the cross bought it back. Now notice. This is, this is amazing. This is not just some like true love waits campaign okay where you sign a purity pledge or you get a purity ring and you promise to save yourself or your spouse while we shame you into chastity promising that you know if you save yourself for marriage then you'll have the best sex imaginable no this isn't heaping shame on you Neither is it making promises that may or may not be true. It's saying, don't you see how loved and forgiven and purified and holy you already are? You're not alone. You're amazingly blessed. 
and you're already bought and claimed by Christ. And it's that positive, beautiful reality that then becomes the motivation for fleeing unholiness. It's not a negative motivation. It's a beautiful one. The gospel is the key reason why holy sexual intimacy should be so protected. So, flee sexual sin of all kinds. Flee that extramarital relationship you've been flirting with. Flee premarital sexual activity. Boyfriends, girlfriends, friends with benefits, fiancés. Flee postmarital sexual activity. Flee sexual activity even with yourself. Flee pornography. Unbelievers will try to say, like, my body, my way, this is my body, I'm going to do whatever I want with my own body as I please. And so do Christians who are living in rebellion to God. Instead, may we joyfully realize daily that we belong to the Lord and thus declare to ourselves or anyone who needs to hear it, this isn't my body, this is God's body. I'm going to do it God's way. Married or unmarried, may we surrender our desires to him. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I want you to see this need to protect holy intimacy in two other places in Scripture quickly. Uh, turning back to Song of Solomon, right in the midst of the love poetry, there are several interjections or interruptions in the action. When some people who are outside of the marriage either speak up or are spoken to. In chapter 1, verse 4, observers of the happy couple pledge their approval and support to them, saying, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Listen, the holy sexuality should not be mocked or made fun of or made light of. It should be praised, extolled, protected, and we should all seek to support those in it. Also, at three key moments in the book, 2, 7, 3, 5, and 8, 4, unmarried people are dressed like this. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, I urge you to not awaken sexual desire until the time is right. It's too powerful. It's too sacred, too holy, too dangerous outside the fireplace to protect you and others from, from sexual damage, defilement, or heartbreak. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And finally, let's turn toward the end of your Bibles to a verse that hammers this point home over in Hebrews chapter 13. 
Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Holding marriage in honor is something that we're trying to do through this series. We're trying to help you have an appropriately high, non-idolatrous view of marriage so that you'll want to protect it, whether you're inside or outside of it. Here, where it says to, to keep the marriage bed undefiled, it implies that this is a holy thing. It is already pure and sacred. You don't have to make it that way. God does. But then we do have the ability to defile it, whether through impurity or immorality. So then, we must be on guard, watching for anything that could dishonor or destroy a marriage, ours or somebody else's. We all have a part to play in this. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. But this brings up one last thing I think we need to address before we close. Because this topic can dredge up all kinds of guilt and shame from our past. Right? Whether we sinned or we were sinned against, we are all sexually broken people. I'm right with you. I've fallen short here. Like, there are things in my past that I regret, and I'm sure you feel the same. So what do we do if we already are defiled? If we've already fallen short in honoring the marriage bed? I believe our only hope is to run back to Jesus the only one to never fall short. Hear his good news afresh. Just listen to this from 1 Corinthians 6 again. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who we are now in Christ. So I think we could add one final point that goes something like this. That sexual intimacy has been defiled by unholiness. But it and we can be re-sanctified. 
Sexual intimacy has been defiled, but it and we can be re-sanctified. Re-sanctified or made holy again. We can be forgiven and redeemed. As it says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You need not be defined by your sexual past anymore if you come to Jesus. And if we're then holy by him, then even our marriages can be holy again, ready to be held in high honor. Look again, like here how, like how marriage reflects the, the strong, faithful, covenantal love of Christ for you. Love that would sacrifice everything, even going so far as to die for you in order to bring you near and embrace you. Like if you have not yet experienced this love for yourself, I would urge you to run to Christ today. Don't remain under God's judgment for your sins or your unholiness any longer. He doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to cleanse you, to make you new. And he proved it by taking your place, dying the death you deserve. So I urge you to give your heart and give your life to him now. We can help you if you need to. And if you already love Jesus, but you're feeling the guilt or shame of your past today, turn again to Christ and let his love wash over you. Your sin has no hold on you anymore. Because Jesus has his hold on you. Not only does marriage reflect the gospel, but believe it or not, holy sexuality reflects the gospel. In the love shared within the triune Godhead from the eternity past, as well as in the intimate love that Christ has for his bride. And think about it, the the ecstatic joys and delights that can be experienced in sex are pale reflections of the joys and delights awaiting us in Christ in eternity. We won't even desire sex anymore because the pleasures will be that much more glorious. For us who are married, let's remember that greater truth even as we delight in the reflection now. It's a dim shadow. And let's also not worship sex, but let's worship the creator and giver and redeemer of it. Sex, as God designed it to be, is a glorious, holy gift that we can delight in in our marriages. It needs to be protected and held in honor, both inside and outside marriage. And even though we are broken, defiled, sexual sinners, we can be re-sanctified. So let's run to Christ, bring out anything that needs to be brought into his light and receive his cleansing mercy and his healing grace today. And then may we go home glorifying God with our bodies, even into our bedrooms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that there is so much sin in us that if you were to hold it against us, none of us could stand.
and yet you sent Jesus to make it clear that you would go to the greatest lengths to bring us back to you. With you, there's forgiveness and mercy, and therefore you are feared. Lord, we come once again to you today. Would you do your cleansing work in us? Help us to honor and glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.